guess I ought to turn this on. Um, the old has passed away, and all things are new, is what Paul teaches us in 2 Corinthians. And so what I want to talk about this morning is I want to talk about this, this New Testament. So let's take a look at verses 19 and 20, and then um, we'll just talk about it. So Luke twenty-two nineteen says, And he took bread and gave thanks and break it, and gave unto them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me, likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Lord God in heaven, we come now to you, and we're getting ready to look into your word. Father, I pray that you would teach us and instruct us and help us, Father, to have a a little bit better understanding about the the great blessing that we have in this this New Testament uh, that has been um, bought for us, has been ratified for us, and sealed for us by the blood of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. I pray, Father in heaven, that you would uh, open up our, our eyes and our ears and our minds, but especially uh, touch our hearts uh, with this wonderful truth that we're getting ready to look into now. And help me, Lord, uh, to communicate it in such a way that not only would it be uh, be understandable, uh, but also something, Father, that, uh, um, well, would be a blessing. Uh, In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, as we read this very familiar passage, I mean, we're getting ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper here at the end of the month and uh, we see the uh, what Brian refers to the two elements of the Lord's Supper right Uh, you know what I mean by the the two elements right we're talking about the the bread and we're talking about the cup or the juice or, or or whatever you want to call it so we see the two elements of the Lord's Supper right here um that uh, he relates to the New Testament in my blood. Now, last week, I think I, I uh, talked a little bit about the bread. Uh, in the broken bread, we see Christ broken for us. That speaks of our salvation. First uh, Corinthians one eighteen. For the preaching of the cross uh, is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. So Christ's body was broken on the cross for our salvation. Uh, In the bread that we eat, we see uh, a picture of Christ in us. This speaks of our sanctification. This speaks of us being set apart unto God. That's what Paul uh, kind of alludes to in Colossians 1.27 where he says... To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So if you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you have Christ in you. Christ in you. And then we see the bread partaken. Uh, and this speaks of our communion or our fellowship or our unity as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all now part of that, that household of God because of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, uh, Paul writes, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. So when we observe the Lord, Lord's Supper, right? Uh, All of these ideas, all of these truths are a part of that uh, observance of the Lord's Supper. It's a time that we 
remember the death of the Lamb of God on behalf uh, for for our you know to deliver us from our sin. Uh, it's through Him that we have forgiveness with the Father. Uh, it's through Him that we're reconciled to God. You know, those are the things that we celebrate at the Lord's Supper. It's because of Him that we have everlasting life. So all these are the things that we celebrate as far as the Lord's Supper is concerned, and all of that is embodied in the symbolism of that bread. Okay, so I'm not going to re-preach all of that, but what I want to talk about is what Paul is referring to here as the cup of blessing, and what Jesus was talking about, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. Now, most of us, even if you have a very um, fundamental, basic understanding of the Bible, uh, we know that our Bible is divided into two parts, don't we? There's a Old Testament and there is a New Testament. There's an Old Testament and there's a New Testament. So our Bibles are divided in two. And of course, the Old Testament, that's the biggest part of the Bible, isn't it? I mean, that's the biggest part of our Bible. And then we've got, then we've got the New Testament that begins with the, the four Gospels. But um, how many of us understand why? How many of us understand why there is a Old Testament and understand why there is a New Testament? You know, it took me a while to kind of figure that out. I always just accepted it. That's just the way it was, right? That's just the way it was. So I think the first thing that I need to do is I need to try to define what is a testament. What is meant by testament? Now, when you read in your Bible, the word testament and the word covenant, you know, you'll read those two words. Those are essentially the very same thing. So when you read testament, it's talking about covenant. Or if you read covenant, it's talking about testament. In fact, in the, in the New Testament, uh, the Greek word is, is the same thing. And you don't need to know that. I mean, that's just what I like to do. I like to go to the strong concordance and, and find out. But it's the same word. So if you read covenant, you're reading testament. If you're reading testament, you're reading covenant. As an example, now get your Bibles ready because I'm going to have you open your Bibles and read some pretty big passages, okay? But in Luke chapter 1 and verse 70, uh, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. That word covenant is the same word testimony that Jesus says here in Luke chapter 22. He goes on, he says, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. So we see here a covenant or a testament that God has made with Abraham concerning God's blessing upon Abraham and all of his progeny. We also see here in Luke chapter 1 that this covenant or testament is also associated with an oath. Okay, with an oath. And an oath, of course, is a, is a pledge or, or, a, or a very strong promise, right? Uh, the word oath 
uh, comes from the root from a root word that means to uh, be enclosed or fenced in which kind of gives you an illustration of what an oath is all about when a person makes an oath what does that say they're bound or fenced in by their words right so you're binding yourself or you're fencing yourself in on this oath so you better be sure you better fulfill it that's why the bible says be very very careful and don't make a vow or an oath rashly you better be serious when you make an oath because you're bound to that oath all right you're bound to that oath and uh, in Genesis 15, 9 through 21, and we're not going to read it, when we studied the life of Abraham, we looked at this. But this covenant that with Abraham, God sealed it with an oath, and this oath or covenant was sealed by blood. Right? There was a, that sacrifice of those animals, and God walked through those severed animals. There was, you know, they split them in half, and he walked through. So that was a blood covenant or a blood oath, which is the strongest possible covenant that anyone can enter into. There, you, you do not break a blood covenant. You do not break a blood oath. And so since it was God who made this covenant or made this oath, then you can be sure of one thing, and that is what? It's going to be abided by, by God. He's going to do it. He's going to do it. Hebrews chapter 6, turn to Hebrews chapter 6. You might as well go to Hebrews and stay there. But I want you to see this in Hebrews chapter 6 because this is important. In Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 17, we read, Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. See, God wanted his people to know, hey, what I said... I'm serious about, and it will come to pass. Verse 18, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul. So therefore, because God made this covenant, this blood covenant, you can bank on it. You can be sure of it. You can put all of your faith and trust in what God has said in regards to the covenant. Okay? So that's what he's saying here. Now, some have taught that a covenant is like a contract. And no, it's not anything like a contract. A contract is is legally binding. It's a legal understanding. A covenant, a biblical covenant, is a spiritual pledge made by God. Big difference. Big difference. A contract is, is an agreement between two or more parties. A, a, a covenant, a biblical covenant, God is pledging himself to someone or someone. He's, he's pledging himself. All right. Uh, in, a, in a contract, 
There's an exchange of, of one good for, you know, for another good, you know, uh, I'll make a contract, I'll pay X number of dollars if you do this, that type of thing. Uh, whereas a covenant, and I've already said this, this is someone giving themselves to another. This is someone giving themselves to another. And then finally, a contract, it's strictly business, right? There's no emotion involved. It's just a a business agreement. Whereas a covenant, a covenant, there is a relational bond uh, between those who are involved in the testament or in the covenant. Kind of like the marriage covenant, all right? Between a man and a woman, that's an emotional bond bond a relational bond between a man and a woman all right the same thing with a covenant with god uh, with a contract if uh, one of the parties uh, does something and doesn't live up to the the contract then that contract is considered broken right and the one who broke the contract, well, then they can be, they can be sued. And that contract is considered uh, uh, null and void. So it's really up to those who, who sign on the bottom line. It's really up to them to fulfill their end of the deal of the contract uh, to make that contract of any worth. Does that make sense? I'm not a lawyer. That stuff gets kind of confusing. But I think basically that's what it is. So um, so, the, so if someone breaks the contract, or if someone fails to an agreement in the contract, then that contract is broken. With a biblical covenant that God makes, um, it doesn't really matter if the person that God makes this covenant with um, maybe fails on their part that doesn't break the covenant because it is God who has made the pledge in the covenant and God's going to remain faithful in that covenant so what does that say about that covenant it's God who it's, it's, it's the character and the person of God that validates that covenant. Does that make sense? Or is that confusing? Alright? God's, but God promises He will do, He will do it. Because He's faithful. He's true. He's trustworthy. And God institutes covenants as a way to demonstrate His, 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 His commitment, uh, His love. Uh, his devotion, his dedication for his namesake is why he enters into these covenants. And regardless of how folks behave in these covenants that God makes, God's going to be true as far as his part is concerned, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Okay? So hopefully that's, I've made that clear. Now, in the Bible, there's like seven different covenants. And don't get nervous, I'm not going to teach about all seven covenants today. But there's seven covenants in the Bible. There's the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant. There is the Palestinian covenant or the Deuteronomy covenant. There's the Davidic covenant. And then there's the New Covenant or the New Testament. 
And these covenants all disclose God's purpose in dealing with mankind on earth. Alright? That's what these covenants are all about. And of these seven covenants, there's two kinds of covenants. Five of these seven covenants are what we would call unconditional covenants. In other words, uh, these covenants say, are like God says, I will. Irregardless of what so-and-so does, I will perform my part in the covenant. All right? I will do that. Um, as an example, turn to Deuteronomy, or Genesis chapter 9. As an example, the covenant that God made with Noah and his sons and his seed, which would be you and me, uh, this is a covenant that's still in force today. This is a covenant that we still are under today. But here is an unconditional covenant, an example of an unconditional covenant that God had made with Mo, Noah and his descendants. Look at Genesis 9, 8. And God spake unto Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And I, behold, I establish my, what? Covenant or testament with you and with your seed after you and with every living creature that is with you of the fowl of the cattle and of every beast of the earth with you from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth and I will establish my covenant with you and here it is neither shall all flesh be cut off anymore by the waters of a flood neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth so God what does God promise I won't wipe everybody out in a flood again and what is the if you will the signature of this covenant we see it every time Almost every time we have a rainstorm. What is that thing that we see in the sky? A rainbow, right? That's a sign from God that, hey, I'm good to my word. I will not flood the earth again. So that's an unconditional covenant. Now, I believe God could have, is, would have been justified <laughs> to have flooded the earth several times. But he didn't, because he's, he's true to his word. He's true to his word. And so uh, the earth is not going to be uh, uh, covered in water again like it was in the days of Noah. Now, two, uh, there's two covenants that we call condi- um, conditional covenants. Now, these are covenants that God entered with Israel. Okay? With Israel, these these two covenants are conditional because they deal with God's chosen people, Israel. These two covenants are the Mosaic covenants and the Deuteronomy or Palestinian covenants. Uh, the Mosaic covenants is what we know of as the law. Right? All of those ceremonies, all of those washings, all of those sacrifices, all of those things that are based upon the Ten Commandments, that's the Mosaic Covenant. That's the law. And this is a covenant that Israel entered into with God with a condition. 
In Exodus 19.5, he says, Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenants, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. So Moses went back and said, here's the conditions of the covenants. What say you? All of Israel says, hey, we will do it. We will enter into this conditional covenant. What was the condition? Obedience, right? They had to obey the law. The second conditional covenant is the Palestinian or the Deuteronomy covenant. And that's found in Deuteronomy 30. And what that is, is as long as Israel obeyed the law, then God would allow them to remain in that land that he promised them through Abraham. But if they disobeyed the law and chased after idols and so forth and so on, God said, if you do that, then I will drive you from the land. Again, the condition, obedience. He also said, if when I drive you from the land and you repent and you pray for forgiveness, he says, I will bring you back into the land. An example of that, of course, was when um, Babylon came and took the people into Babylon for 70 years of captivity. And then in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, they came back. Because why? Because they prayed and they repented, right? So that's, that's an example of that conditional covenant. But all of that is based upon their obedience to the Mosaic covenant that you do everything I tell you to do, that you obey the law. Is that clear as mud? Okay. So that's the Mosaic covenant. Those are the two conditional covenants. Now it is this Mosaic covenant or testament that makes up the majority of your Bible. That's the Old Testament. Okay? That's the Old Testament. Because Genesis, right? That Mosaic Covenant hadn't hadn't been established. It was established after Israel was delivered out of Egypt and then made in the wilderness, I think in Exodus chapter 19 is what I just quoted. So after Exodus 19, we are under the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law. That's why we have this huge part of our Bibles that we call the Old Testament. Now, let me ask you a question. It's also known as the dispensation of law, but that's another topic. Let me ask you a question. How well did Israel do in keeping that covenant? Miserably. Yeah, they didn't do too well, did they? In fact, Paul writes in Romans chapter 3. In fact, turn to Romans chapter 3. I want you guys to see this stuff. Hopefully we'll be able to get through everything I need to say. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, this is what Paul writes about living up to the covenant. He says... 
Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulchre, with their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is a knowledge of sin. So let me ask you a question. Other than Jesus Christ, is there anybody on this planet who has ever been able to keep every jot and tittle of the law? Ron, put your hand down. Nobody. I know that. I know that. I'm just kidding. It is this law. It is this covenant. It is this Old Testament that Paul is writing about. Now turn to Hebrews chapter 8. It is this that Paul is talking about. And when you turn to Hebrews, to the book of Hebrews, what Paul is doing is he is explaining to what your theologians call Hebrew believers. They're actually Christians, but they were raised Jews. Alright? These were men and women who were raised in the Jewish faith. They knew all about the sacrifices and the temples and the washings. And this is, this is where they were raised since childhood. And now they have come to believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And what they're struggling with is how does the old law fit in with Jesus Christ? They were making a, uh, they were having a difficult time transitioning from the Old Testament into the New Testament. That's basically what the book of Hebrews is all about. This transitioning that these Hebrew believers were having a difficult time in doing from the Old Testament under Moses into the New Testament in Christ. So look at Hebrews chapter 8. And starting in verse 3, this is a big chunk of, a a big, big passage here. But it says here, for every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Again, this is something that the Hebrew believers lived, right? They saw this every day. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man, who is he talking about? Jesus Christ, have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest. Why? Because he was born of the tribe of Judah. And it's the Levites who are the priests, okay? Uh, He should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, the Mosaic law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. So that tells us right off the bat that everything that occurred in the Old Testament was a mere shadow of the reality that Jesus Christ is. All right, those were just shadows of the reality that Jesus Christ is. And then he goes on 
in uh, verse 6, But now hath he, Jesus Christ, obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of what? A better covenant, a better testament, which was established upon better promises. For if the first covenant, the Mosaic law, had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. Do you know why the Mosaic law was considered uh, at, um, not, um, lacking? It wasn't the law, Right? Because Paul said in Romans 7 that the law of God is perfect. What made the law, if you will, imperfect? Yeah, we couldn't keep it. The Jews couldn't keep it. Right? If the Jews could have kept the law, then it would not have, you wouldn't have had fault. Right? So that's what he's saying here. Then should no place have been sought for the second, the New Testament. For finding fault with, not the law, them, the people. He saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. See, that identifies what we're talking about here. It's the Mosaic Covenant. uh, Because they continued not in my covenants. And I regarded them not, saith the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind, write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. And that he saith, A new covenant he hath made the first old, now that which to decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Okay, he's, what he's referring to is what Jeremiah chapter 30 talks about, and we're going to get to that in a minute. But what we are seeing here is that the Old Testament will pass away. It waxeth old, and it passes away like a garment. You remember that parable that Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 5? He compared the Old Testament to like a garment being wrapped up. And you don't put a new piece of cloth into the old garment. Lisa takes away from the old garment. It rips it. That's what Jesus was referring to. He was telling them, hey, this Old Testament, this Old Covenant is going to pass away. It's going to pass away. It's going to go away. It's temporary. It's temporary. The book of Hebrews is an excellent study about the Old and the New Testament. And about the, the one replacing the other. And I don't have time to go through it. It would take a... Well, look how long it's taken me to go through Luke, Right? It would take some time, but it's a good, it's a, that's the reason why Hebrews was written, is to show you this transition, to show you why it happened and why, and why Jesus Christ's New Testament is so much better than the old. So I'm not going to go through all of that, but what I want to do is this. Hopefully I'll have the time to finish it. I want to talk about how the New Testament fulfills the Old Testament 
and therefore renders the Old Testament like a garment folded up and put away. All right? That's what Jesus is talking about when he says this blood is the blood of the New Testament. I want to show you that. Now, the key word in understanding all of this is this word right here, fulfilled. Fulfilled. That's the key word in understanding this old being replaced by the new. Let me start by quoting, what's the first book in the New Testament? Matthew. Who was the target audience of Matthew when he wrote his gospel? The Jews. Matthew's gospel. This is what he says. Matthew one twenty two. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying behold a virgin shall be with child shall bring forth a son they shall call his name Emmanuel which being interpreted interpreted is God with us Matthew 2:15 and was and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying out of Egypt have I called my son Matthew 2:17 then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet saying in Ramah was there a voice heard lamentation and weeping and great mourning Rachel weeping for her children it would not be comforted because they are not Matthew 2:23 and he came out and dwelt in a city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets he shall be called a Nazarene Matthew 4.14 that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying the land of Zebulun and the land of Nathalem by the way of the sea beyond Jordan Galilee of the Gentiles the people which sat in darkness saw great light and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death light has sprung up Matthew 5.17 this is Jesus speaking in the Sermon of the Mount <clears throat> think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets I am not come to destroy but to fulfill for verily I say unto you till heaven and earth pass one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled and then the last one Matthew eight seventeen, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses this truth about the New Testament fulfilling that which is written in the Old Testament is carried on all the way through the New Testament all the way to the book of Revelations because Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all that was written and spoken about in the Old Testament Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of what the prophets uh, prophesied. He is the he is the fulfillment of what the psalmist worshipped. He is the fulfillment of what all the godly saints in the Old Testament longed for. So the key word in understanding all of this between the Old Testament and the New Testament is the word fulfilled and that Jesus Christ is that fulfillment. He is that fulfillment. One man said, if there were no New Testament, then the Old Testament would be like a river running out into the desert and then disappearing into the sands of time. Because there would be no fulfillment. There would be no fulfillment. If there was no New Testament, then there would be no fulfillment of all that the Old Testament talks about. You know, the Old Testament, we read about... (laughs) 
blood sacrifices. We read about offerings. We read about ceremonies. We read about various prohibitions. Thou shalt not do this and thou shalt not do that. You know, we read about all of this stuff, but there's no fulfillment. No fulfillment. As far as the sacrifices are concerned, you know, beginning with Abel, through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, the sacrifices being organized in the book of Leviticus, uh, the sacrifices are perpetually carried on and, and referred to again and again in the historical books. They're uh, referred to even in the book of Job. Uh, they're referred to in uh, the Psalms. It's preached about in the prophetic writings. Uh, animal sacrifices are read throughout the whole Old Testament. You can't get away from the blood of an innocent being sacrificed on the behalf of the guilty in the Old Testament. You just can't get away from it. It's, it's, it's there. It's throughout. But there's no fulfillment in those sacrifices. Because there's these perpetual offerings always being offered, always being offered. So there's no fulfillment. But yet in Jesus Christ, there is a fulfillment. There is a fulfillment as far as all those blood sacrifices are concerned. And why is that? Because he is the Lamb of God which has come to take away the sins of the world. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament sacrifices. The blood of the innocent being shed for the guilty. In Luke chapter 10, Luke, I'm in Luke. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 7. This is a quote from Psalms 40. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me. What book? The Old Testament. To do thy will, O God, above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. Old and new, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. What does it say there? Once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices. What does it say there? Which can never take away sins. They could not fulfill their purpose but this man after he had offered one sacrifice for sins for a little while forever sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of those blood sacrifices in the Old Testament by his blood there is a new testament a new testament 
in Jesus Christ all those sacrifices find their fulfillment and he accomplished what they could not do once for all forever amen that's a good testament that's a good testament In the Old Testament, we read of a chosen people with a high calling and a glorious destiny. You read of their beginning in a man of faith named Abraham. Who uh, You also read of an oft-repeated promise concerning a land. Uh, You read about miraculous deliverances from bondage in the Old Testament, of great conquests and blessings, of great kings. And we learn yet another promise uh, that there's going to be a king who is going to reign on an everlasting throne over an everlasting kingdom. That's wonderful stuff. But you know what else you read in the Old Testament? You read of constant failure. You read of exile. You read of yet another return to the land, but it never, never reaches that promised glory that it talks about. It never reaches that that pinnacle that it seems like the Old Testament is reaching for and grasping for and telling us about. It never reaches that climax. And then in the last book of the Old Testament, we read the prophet's complaint. In Malachi 2.17, he says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet ye say, Wherein have we wearied him? When ye say, Everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them. Or where is the God of, of judgment? So, so, the Old Testament ends in disappointment. In disappointment. But yet, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that glorious and great destiny. He is the fulfillment of all of the promises that God has promised about that glorious future and that, and that promise that he made to Abraham in, in, in possessing the land. And he's also the fulfillment of that promise uh, of, to, to, to King David that his seed would sit on an everlasting throne. And it's in Jesus Christ that that all of this uh, glory that the Old Testament is reaching for and stretching for, he is that fulfillment in one day. He will sit in glory in Jerusalem over an everlasting kingdom. He is the fulfillment of that. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 10. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 10. The Apostle Paul is writing about this. And he's quoting from Psalms 102 and 103 and 104 and 110. And he says here in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 10, he says, And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. And they shall, what? Wax old as doth a garment, because they are being replaced by something new and glorious. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? 
got you and me. We're the heirs of salvation because of this new and better covenant. This new and better testament. We have a glorious king who will rule over a glorious kingdom. I mentioned the law. In the Old Testament, we read about a perfect law. We read about a priesthood and a system of worship that surpasses uh, the pagan mystery religions of the world. In the Old Testament, there is a spiritual wisdom in its writings and in its prophets and in its psalmists that rivals the wisdom of the world. There is a truth uh, that's contained in the Old Testament that is universal among all peoples. That's what Paul talks about in, I believe it's Romans chapter 2, where God's law is written on the hearts of men. You find it everywhere. Everywhere people know it's wrong to kill. Everywhere people know it's wrong to steal. Where do you think they get that from? Where do you think they get that from? We read of a nation of priests promised. We read of a period of righteousness and justice that will cover the face of the world. We read of a one true God that will be honored and worshipped by all nations on the planet. But yet when you read in the Old Testament, you also read a, a longing there's a longing, an unsatisfied longing in the, in the hearts of the people of the Old Testament. Job cries out, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. In Psalms, Psalms chapter 42, the psalmist writes, As the heart panteth after the water brooks, brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? You see, in the Old Testament, we realize how far we fall short. And we have this longing. We see where our worship is tainted by sin and failure and we're so aware of our shortcomings and there's this longing, there's this longing uh, to be with God but yet we know there's this separation. There's this gulf. There's a longing. In Jesus Christ, that longing is fulfilled. In Jesus Christ, that longing is fulfilled. Because of Jesus Christ, I love this. Because of Jesus Christ, we can cry out, Abba, Father. I don't know what that does to you but that just that is so meaningful it's so meaningful Hebrews 4.14 says seeing that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens Jesus the son of God let us hold fast our profession 
For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In Jesus Christ... We see the fulfillment of this perfect law, Romans 10.4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. In Jesus Christ, we who are sinners are now made righteous. And in him this longing is satisfied. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Do you realize that in Jesus Christ it is not a religion but a relationship? A relationship. And as we read through the Old Testament, we find something else that no other religious book can claim, and that is fulfillment of prophecy. Individuals and events predicted in the, in the Old Testament have, have come to pass that even a skeptic must read and see and proclaim that the finger of God hath done this. They're so accurate as they were fulfilled. And as you read about these predictions, all of these predictions begin talking about the seed of a woman. The seed of a woman. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his feet. That's where it starts with the seed of the woman. This promised seed is interwoven all throughout the Old Testament and it fills the heart with hope and promise because so much hinges upon this promised seed. In Isaiah 53.10 it says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Do you know who is the seed of Jesus Christ? All of us who believe in his name. All of us who believe in his name. All of us who are born again, according to John 1.12, and we are now called what? The sons of God. The sons of God. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of those prophecies. You read in Hebrews chapter 11, and you read about these folks looking ahead, looking ahead, looking ahead. Because they know that on this earth... That's not where it's at. They're looking for a city whose foundations are made by God. They're looking for a better place that God has provided. A better place that Jesus Christ has provided. Remember what Jesus promised in John 14? I go to do what? To prepare a place for you. He is the fulfillment, the fulfillment. Paul writes in Hebrews thirteen thirteen. Let us go therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach, for there have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. 
one to come. And then one last thing about the Old Testament. We kind of was introduced to this earlier on. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. This is the New Testament. This is the New Covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31. The people were failing God. They were falling into apostasy. They were breaking the law. They were getting ready to be booted into exile into Babylon. But God loved his people. God wanted the best for his people. And so God made a covenant with his people. He says here in Jeremiah 31, 31, even though you're rascals now, that's a paraphrase by Jeff Trude, okay? Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. Do you see the love there? Like a husband to his wife? But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, uh, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. Now remember, he is talking to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So he's talking about the whole nation of Israel, the chosen people okay that's who he's talking to and this prophetic promise has it come to pass not yet not yet but it will come to pass and it'll come to pass in the millennial kingdom when the house of Israel and the house of Judah will be there in the millennial kingdom the Jews must first pass through that refining fire of the seven years of tribulation but there will be a remnant saved and when their backs are to the wall that remnant will look up and call out to him whom they have pierced and in a day they shall be saved and it will be that remnant that will go into the millennial kingdom and Jeremiah 23 5 says behold the days come saith the Lord that I will raise unto David a righteous branch and a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth and in his days Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell, dwell safely and this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness in the millennial kingdom that's when the new covenant in regards to Israel and to Judah will come to pass that Jeremiah 31 talks about they will be given a new heart a new mind they'll have the law written a law of God written in their hearts no man will need to teach them why is that because God has a great plan for the nation of Israel his chosen people in Exodus 19:5, he says now therefore if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests because it is during the millennial kingdom that Israel and the house of Judah they will be the priests to the whole world. 
And they will teach the whole world about the glories of God. And they'll teach to the whole world the laws and the, cov- and the precepts and everything that the world needs to know to rightfully wor- uh, um, worship God. Deuteronomy 26.19, he says, And to make thee high above all nations, which he hath made in praise and name and in honor, that thou mayest be a holy people unto the Lord thy God, as he hath spoken. This has not happened yet, because they're still in unbelief, and they're still partially blind. But in the millennial kingdom, this covenant that he spoke about in Jeremiah will become a reality for the house of Israel and for the house of Judah. But in the meantime, you and I, you and I are partakers of this new covenant. That's what Jesus meant about the blood being the blood of the New Testament. John 1.12, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Born-again Christians are now partakers of this new covenant, established upon the blood sacrifice of Jesus' own blood, the strongest of all covenants. Hebrews 10.15 says, Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us the church for after that he had said before this is the covenant that I will make with him after those days uh, saith the Lord and then he repeats the very thing that Jeremiah talks about and then he goes on in verse 22 after that he says and let us the church who are now partakers of this new covenant draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering for he is faithful that promised he is faithful that promised we are now partakers of this new covenant this new testament we are now partakers of the blessings of this new covenant and of this new testament the church does not replace Israel as some teach Israel has her place God has not forsaken his people but in Ephesians 2.11 Paul writes that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called a circumcision in the flesh made by hands that at that time ye were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world but now in Christ Jesus ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ for he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us having abolished in his flesh the enmity even the law of commandments contained in ordinances to make of himself twain one new man so making peace we are now the recipients of the blessings of this new testament in Jesus Christ we have a new life we have a new heart we have new minds we are a new man that's what Paul teaches. We are new men, new creatures in Christ. All things have, old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. That's the New Testament. That's you and me. With this New Testament, we are new creatures. And one of these days, we're going to get new bodies. And one of these days, we're going to be living in a new home. 
We are members of this New Testament, partakers of this New Testament. We are under this new covenant, ratified by the blood of Jesus Christ, which tells me that I cannot lose my salvation in Christ. If I could lose my salvation in Christ, what would that make God? A liar. Is God a liar? No. No. Hebrews 13.20, and I'll close with this. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, work in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. That's why I say and firmly believe of all the people on this planet, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are the most blessed and privileged. Don't let anybody tell you any differently because there are a lot of voices out there trying to tell you differently. Don't let them do it. Don't let them do it. We are members, we are partakers of this new blessed covenant and testament ratified by the innocent blood of Jesus Christ. That's a high privilege indeed. Amen? Glorious Father in heaven, we thank you now for the truth of your word. Help us, O oh Lord God, to stand upon that truth in spite of the folks trying to tell us differently. Father in heaven, we are so privileged, and I pray, Lord God, that we do not take that for granted, that Father in heaven, instead, that we would take this wonderful word of reconciliation that we have and that we would tell others about the privilege that they too could have knowing Jesus Christ as their Savior. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.